And we're going to work for the month of October on Ezra and Nehemiah as we prepare for our building project, because that's what seems good to do or to teach on. But uh, this morning, we've got to cover a survey of the Old Testament so you can understand the implication and the importance of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to run through probably about 2,500 years of Israel's history in 45 minutes and bring you up to speed as, the, as to why Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel are so critical and how that fits with us. So let's pray and we'll get into this. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus. For Sunday school, we thank you, Father, for the Old Testament. It is holy scriptures. It is God-inspired, God-breathed. And the New Testament says all scriptures given us by inspiration for reproof, for doctrine, for its instruction, that we may be thoroughly furnished and producing good works. Father, the New Testament even says the, old, the scriptures of the Old Testament, they're able to make us wise unto salvation. And the New Testament says these things were written as an example for us that we would not fall into idolatry or, or sin against you. And Father, we thank you for this time. Bless us here, Lord, as we cover this, uh, this much of your people's history and you prepare us to study Ezra and Nehemiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's run through this. A brief survey of Old Testament history. I'll probably have to read some of it and then stop and elaborate upon other parts, but it is a lot. So to understand the significance of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which, by the way, up until about the second century was one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was combined as one book, but then they started breaking it up, just, just to throw that out there. A quick survey of Israel's history is necessary. Just so you understand the significance, the weightiness, what's the big deal about building the wall? What's the big deal about starting a revival? Why was Judah or Jerusalem and the condition that it was in? To understand this, let's just back up all the way to Abraham and understand why Israel is even Israel. So a promise to a single man. So stay with me here. The only reason why Israel is even Israel is because God made a promise to one man. God even said that in Deuteronomy. He said, I did not choose you because you were great. I did not choose you because you were significant. He said, you were the least of all people. He said, but I chose you because I would keep my covenant with your father, Abraham. So we can see that, that God keeps his promises. And sometimes when he makes a promise, it even results in him having to bless a whole nation. And that lets you know how much of a stickler God is for keeping his word. Israel only exists because God made a promise to one man all those thousands of years ago. Now that ought to encourage us that God, if he makes a promise to us, if he'll keep it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all down through Jerusalem, even to where today Israel is a force to be reckoned with all because of a promise to one man, you better believe he'll keep his promises to us. So a promise to a single man, Genesis 11 through, to, uh, through chapter 25, Abraham is called the father of our faith. The history of Israel begins with him. Abraham's father, Terah, was the descendant of Noah's son, Shem. So actually, Abraham is from the lineage of Noah. Of course, everybody is, but specifically of the, th the third son, Shem. You had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Shem is the lineage that produced Abraham, which went on to produce Israel. It appears that Jehovah God may have first appeared unto Terah to go into Canaan, but he only made it as far as Haran. He told him, leave Ur of the Chaldees. And the Bible says um, that, that uh, Haran, excuse me, Terah took his son and his daughter-in-law and his grandson, Lot. Terah raised his grandson, Lot, and he said, and they left Ur of the Chaldees to go into Canaan. And they came to Haran. And that's where they spent the rest of their life, or at least Terah, Abraham's daddy did. So then Terah dies. 
And, and the Bible says this, look at our next section here. The Bible then says that the Lord had spoken unto Abram to depart. It says past tense. It doesn't tell us when the encounter happened. It doesn't tell us how it happened. It just says he had spoken. Maybe it could be that was why Terah was headed there because Abraham said, we need to go to Canaan. We don't know for sure. All we know is that it says he had spoken. All right. But he doesn't obey till he's 75. It could be, we don't know, but it could be he had spoken to Abram 30 years earlier. All Genesis 12, 1 says, and the Lord God had spoken. Past tense. But he doesn't obey until he's 75. And we might could stop and teach there and say, what has the Lord had spoken unto you that you still haven't obeyed? I would think the sooner you obey, the easier it would be. When you're 75 and you're just stepping out to obey, things are pretty much stacked against you. Why make it any more difficult than you have to? Brother Hagin used to say that the strong believers are quick to obey, quick to believe, quick to forgive, quick to repent. Uh, it's good to be quick to obey when you know that it's God. Maybe Abraham, uh, he had troubles with daddy. If the Lord had said, leave your kinsfolk, that would have been daddy. And now that his dad's dead, it's a little bit easier. There's all these lame excuses we have. Family is usually the biggest one. I like Pastor Kwoko said, he said, brother, they'll always say blood is thicker than water because it's true. But blood is not thicker than spirit. And unless you have a covenant with someone, and in that case, it's only God and your spouse, everybody else is disposable. When it comes to serving Jesus Christ, every friend is disposable. Every child over the age of 18 is disposable. Now, we don't mean that rude or crude, but when it comes to serving God, don't let blood trump the blood of Jesus. You've got to serve Jesus. We teach this in the prisons all the time because most of those folks are serving life sentence on installment plans because of family or friends they can't get rid of. Amen. That's why Teen Challenge is so successful. It takes people away from everybody they know and thrusts them into the presence of Jesus Christ 365 days, 24 hours a day till they're broken of all their carnal soul ties. Amen. So that's what kept Abraham back, no doubt. In fact, we know it did because he took Lot with him, which the Lord said, don't do. He said, leave everybody, but he took Lot. So from all that he knew, and uh, excuse me, the Bible says that the Lord had spoken for, unto Abraham to depart from all that he knew and head for a new land. Abram began to obey at the age of 75. Well, better sooner, later than never. And at uh, least he obeyed. God made a covenant with a man so that he might bless all of mankind. So now we have this covenant in place. I will make of you a great nation like the stars in the sky, sand that I see, and all nations will be blessed through you. That's the covenant of Abraham. He is the father of our faith. We are now grafted into that promise and that covenant. We have the blessings of Abraham through faith in God Almighty. Egyptian captivity. That brings us up. We got to move along now. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph prophesying that God would eventually visit Israel in the land of Egypt and deliver them into the land promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you remember, you have Abraham, then he has a son, Isaac, then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has his name changed to Israel, and then Jacob, also known as Israel, has 12 sons and then others, but 12, one of them being Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, but it's all the hand of God. And overnight at the age of 30, Joseph becomes Pharaoh, 
or really Pharaoh's right-hand man, all to preserve the seed of Abraham during a tremendous famine and drought. That was all done so God would keep his promise to one man. Joseph was in place in Egypt so that when the famine hit, the, the lineage of Israel, Jacob, would have food. Also, God's word wouldn't fall to the ground concerning Abraham. So Joseph goes through hell for 14, 15 years so that God can keep a promise. That brings Israel, really just 12 sons and extended family. So it's a giant family reunion, maybe a couple hundred. It brings Israel out of Canaan back into Egypt because they had been wandering about in Canaan land. That, that causes them to take residence now in Egypt during the time of famine and drought, and they never left. That's how Israel got into Egypt for food by the hand of God. You with me? Okay. The extended family of Jacob, now also called Israel, put down roots and flourished in Egypt until the land was filled with them. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. It was full of them. There arose a king that did not know Joseph. That's what the Bible says. And out of fear, he moved politically against the Israelites and made a second class out of them, eventually turning them into slaves. He said specifically, these Israelites are outgrowing us and they outnumber us. And if we ever go to war, they might just turn on us and join our enemies against us. So let's suppress them. And so it was a political thing. And they slowly began to denigrate them and make them second class. The more Egypt oppressed them, the more they flourished. Israel spent a total of 430 years in Egypt, 400 years of it being in affliction. The Bible tells us they came out in the 430th year. But the Bible says God prophesied in Genesis, they will know affliction for 400 years. So it would seem they had 30 years of just growing. And then the Pharaoh that came to power was after 30 years and says, I didn't like Joseph. I don't know who he was. And who are these Jews? Actually, they weren't called Jews till much, 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 much later. And so that's when they began to oppress him. Eventually, their oppression caused them to cry aloud unto God for God to deliver them. God sent a man named Moses to deliver them. And so they're there for 430 years. That's twice as long as America has existed. Amen. It lets you know that God's not in any kind of hurry. We're freaking out because we don't know what to do next year. And God let his people hang out for 430 years and suffer oppression. You complain because your people have been brought over on a boat and suffered oppression for 150 years. He let his people build pyramids for 400 years. And he was in no hurry at all. In fact, before it even happened, he told Abraham, they'll be under oppression for 400 years. But then, then God said this something interesting. He said, for the sins of Canaan have not been fulfilled yet. So I can't give them the promised land yet. So your people get to go suffer while these people over here get sinful enough for me to wipe them out. <laughs> it's just part of God. It's not good word of faith doctrine. That's just part of it. It's not good word of faith doctrine, but guess what God told Abraham on the mountain when there was a dark and a fire walk between the two sacrifices? He said, they will suffer affliction for 400 years and the sins of Ramoth have not been filled yet and I cannot give them the promised land yet. So you hang out here, suck it up. When they're sinful enough, I'll deliver you, drive them out and you can have the promised land. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm gonna do this summer. I don't know what we're going to do for vacation this year. 
and my son still isn't saved yet. God's not concerned. We just live on the 24-hour news cycle. And if somebody doesn't return our text in 15 minutes, we think they're mad at us. Amen. All right. I think sometimes God allowed us to be born in this day and age because we would have never made it back then. <laughs> we, we like, sometimes we exhort each other, we're born of such a time as this. No, because you couldn't make it in such a time as that. <laughs> There's two sides to every coin. We just like to look at the shiny side. Turn it over, see what you really look like. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> the Exodus and the law. All right. So Israel had not known the God of their fathers. And you have to keep that in mind. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. They, they don't know God like Abraham knew God. They don't know God like Isaac knew God. They don't know God like Jacob knew God. And even when you look at Jacob, he didn't really know God very well. None of those guys knew God well. Because there was no law given yet. It was up to God to appear unto them whenever he wanted to. And God is still in no hurry. So for 400 years, you're serving, rubbing elbows with the Egyptians, worshiping Ramses and Pharaoh and, and all these Osiris and Isis and, and Apis, all these Pharaoh gods, these Egyptian gods. They don't know the God of Israel. They know they're Israelites. They know their, their, their Israeli history and their Israelitish history. But they, they're not worshipers of Jehovah but they start to cry out. This is oppressive. God, now here's, here's, maybe I'll confound you, but if you read the scriptures, you'll see it very clearly. God did not deliver Israel because they were afflicted. All right? And God did not deliver them because they cried for help. And maybe that ought to wake you up. God doesn't deliver you because you're afflicted and God doesn't deliver you because you cry out for help. There's heathen going to hell every day crying out for help and affliction. What the Bible says specifically, God delivered them because they cried for help and he remembered his covenant with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All because he would not break his promise to one man. Now, thank God we have a covenant now. And here he's our father. But sometimes we think God ought to do stuff because we're, we're complaining or or we think something's not fair. You got to be careful. We just don't know the mind of God. We, we can, and we ought to be studying to prove it, but there's things that we just don't understand, and we can't be cocky about it. We have to cry out for mercy. Lord, I don't understand everything, but if you can do anything, have mercy on me. We as Americans and as word of faith believers, we sometimes get to where we boss God around, and it's not proper. Jesus Christ never bossed the father around. The most he ever said is, Lord, if there's any other way, that's the closest he ever got to bossing the father around. We get downright bossy. We get mad at God. We, we shake our fist at him in our heart. We point our finger at him sometimes. Why, God? Well, I would remind you, Proverbs 19 says, man's heart directs his path, and when it costs him stuff, then he gets mad at God. We don't have a right to point the finger at God. God is just, he is holy, he is the righteous judge. He, he never breaks any of his rules and he never will. And whatever happens, happens and God is just in permitting it, causing it, allowing it, however you wanna look at it. But you've gotta understand, we don't operate outside the law of God. We are not lawless. A lot of Christians go there, but it costs them dearly. 
He did not deliver them because they were afflicted. They've been afflicted for 399 years. And he said it was going to happen. And he didn't deliver them because they cried out for help because they've been crying out for help for 399 years. But he delivered them when they cried out they, because of their affliction and he remembered the covenant. And that's why the Bible says, the Lord tells us, come, put me in remembrance. Let us reason together. We gotta be able to remind the Lord of his word. Lord, your word says. Not that he ever forgets anything, but we can't presume to boss God around. Not fair, God, it's not fair. Woe to any adult Christian that ever utters those words in prayer. It's not fair. It's not fair. Amen. So be careful of that. By the hand of God, Moses delivered Israel from the oppression of Pharaoh. God judged Egypt just as he said he would. The wrath of God was unleashed on a nation for the first time ever. He, he judged cities. He judged tribes, but never a whole nation. And the Passover was instituted. Israel spoiled the riches of Egypt and walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. The most powerful military in the world was drowned in the sea behind them. Moses led Israel to Mount Horeb to meet the God of their fathers. Now keep in mind, they'd never met the God of Israel before. They, they, they had never met him. And that's what the Lord told Moses. Go in there, let my people go so they might come into the wilderness and worship me. That's what the whole thing was about. They just wanted a worship service. And Pharaoh would not relent. God wanted to meet them and he wanted them to meet him. It's amazing or perhaps stark to consider how many Christians have never met their God. Did you know you can be born again and have never met your God? I got born again at the age of seven and it was as simple as saying, I don't know who this Jesus is, what my heart said, but I've got to get him. I did not know him. I had been born again by a simple act of faith and thank God, but I didn't meet with God. From that point on, I had to be discipled. I, I'm, I'm scared, I'm terrified to think how many Christians are born again but have never met their God. Or they don't meet with him on a regular basis now. Once you've met him, you want to keep meeting him. Now, not to diminish it or, or be carnal, but it's almost like when you, when you meet God, it's like going on a date and you meet him and you say, I like you, I'd like to spend more time with you. But at some point you commit to him and say, I want to be married to you, Lord, not, not to be carnally minded or naturally minded. Some folks, though, they still just date Jesus. They just date the church. They're not committed to anything. They come and go as they please. The Lord's not looking for dating. He's looking for us to meet with him and know him and be committed to him. The Bible says that uh, Jesus and the church is much like marriage, and it is a great mystery. Some folks would just flirt with God, though. Moses led Israel to Mount Horeb to meet the God of their fathers, and they were terrified. <laughs> we liked what he did for us, but now we want to meet, he wants to meet us face to face. I don't like this. As long as he's doing for me, I'm good with this relationship. Sounds like a lot of word of faith, folks. As long as he's doing for me, I'm good with this relationship. As long as he's my sugar daddy, as long as he's parting the Red Sea, as long as he's wiping out my enemies, as long as he's putting clothes on me, as long as he's blessing me, I, I'm good with this. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want nothing required of me. We have to be careful. The Lord did all of that so he could meet with them. He parted the Red Sea so he could meet with them. It's all, honestly, if you want to look at it this way, everything he did in Egypt was so that he could get his people into church. I want to have a service and meet with them on my mountain. 
I will go to that length and that extreme to get my people in a meeting with me. I'll wipe out a nation that prohibits them. I'll smite them. Frogs and fleas and bloody rivers and red seas that part and wiping out a military so you can come and meet with me at the mountain of God. And they were thankful for all that cool stuff. But then when they were presented with church service, I don't want to go. I appreciate everything else you did for me. You got me saved. You delivered me. I'm no longer a slave. But I really don't, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go up on this mountain. God's there. <laughs> and if God's there, I might have to change. Amen. Through Moses, God instituted the rules and regulations by which they were both to behave in life and behave toward God. This is called the law. All right? The law is very simple. How you behave in life and how you behave towards God. There were two parts to the law. The ceremonial law and the moral law. The ceremonial law is washings, pigeons, clothing, how you grow your facial hair if you're a priest or don't grow it, what you do uh, if, you're, if you're a woman and you're menstruating. That's the ceremonial law. The moral law is don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't blaspheme. What a lot of folks, a lot of the heretics are saying now is we're, we're delivered from the law. Well, the ceremonial aspect of the law has been fulfilled. We don't worry about linen garments anymore. We don't worry about facial hair anymore. We don't worry about being outside the camp for seven days if you're menstruating. But we have not been delivered from thou shalt not murder. We have not been delivered from thou shalt not commit adultery. We have not been delivered from that. We are still under that law. Unless, of course, you want to go kill somebody, sleep with their wife, and then lie about it. Any court of law in the world will put you in prison for it if they don't kill you first. Amen. So that's the law. That brings us to the 40 years in the wilderness. Only a few weeks after the Red Sea, Israel came to the border of their promised land, Canaan. Twelve spies were sent in both to prove the land and prove the hearts of the fledgling nation and their fledgling walk with God. Whenever you start walking with God, you will be proven. I, I'm, I think you're like me. I don't want to have to take the same test 45 times. I want to take it once and then pass it twice at most and get a higher grade and go on. Some folks, though, you can be born again 45 years and you're still failing the same test. God does not want that for you. He sent the spies in to prove their hearts as a nation and their hearts as a people who are supposed to serve Jehovah. They failed the test. Ten spies brought back an evil report and provoked the whole nation, uh, the whole of the nation to fear and rebellion. Only two spies had walked by faith and brought back the report of the Lord, Joshua and Caleb. All right, we're familiar with all of this. This rebellion provoked God to anger. As punishment for their excuses and disobedience, he condemned the entire nation to walk in circles until everyone over the age of 20 had died. Now, that's a sad thing to think God would have to wait for a generation of old folks to die off because they won't get with the program. What you ought to say if you're an old person is, I ain't dying off. God's using this old person. Now, now, not to scare you or provoke you, but I, I, in our church, I see the Lord raising up the younger people to come in and, and fill in any vacuum that there might be, any void. But you ought to be able to say, even if you're older, even if you're salt and peppery in your hair, even if you've covered it up with just for men or just for ladies or whatever, you ought to say, I'm the Joshua and Caleb around here. 
The other 10 can die off, <laughs> but I'm not. There's too much work to be done. And really shame on us for allowing God to have to wait longer. Honestly, we ought to be the ones waiting on God. He shouldn't have to be waiting on us. Amen. The Bible says those that wait on the Lord, you ought to be ready just waiting on him. It doesn't say blessed are those who make the Lord's wait. There's no verse that says that. The Bible does say be instant in season and out. Be ready. Don't make the Lord wait for you. This is known as the 40 years in the wilderness. However, God in his mercy still provided for his people. So though he judged them, he's still merciful. He realized they were a bunch of sinning heathen, that they'd been in Egypt for 400 years. So they were more Egyptian than they were anything. They just didn't intermarry. But they were Egyptian through and through. Just like the, the, the Scudder kids. If the Scudder kids spend five or six more years in Africa, they'll be more African than they'll be American. It's just how it is because they've spent more time there. God in his mercy still provided for his people. He provided provision and protection. Their shoes never wore out. They had fresh manna and quail every day. They had fire by night and a cloud by day. Now listen to this. This is what struck me as I wrote this last night. They experienced the supernatural provision of God without ever fulfilling their destiny. Do not think you're right with God because he provides miracles for you. Don't think you're doing any favors for God because you see miracles and healings. This nation saw it for 40 years. Miracle provision, signs and wonders. They were undefeated in battle, but they never fulfilled their destiny. Yeah, they had the hand of God on them as they wandered in circles to their own death. And we can have a false sense of security seeing miracle signs and wonders. That's great, but are we fulfilling the plan of God? I would rather have shoes that wear out and ankles that are fat marching into the promised land, taking Jericho, hungry, than to be full in my belly, shoes that supernaturally don't wear out, manna that blows in every day and quail as well, and wander in circles till I die. Sometimes we stop to worship the miracle rather than the God of the miracle. We have to be careful of that. All right. God had delivered Israel from Egypt, but he was unable to remove Egypt from Israel. He had to wait for a younger generation that did not remember Egypt fondly enough to desire it anymore. We don't want to have to wait for a younger generation. I want to go now, 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 now. A season of judges that brings us to our next step, moving right along in the history of Israel. Doing pretty good, covered about a thousand years of history so far. After Moses died, Joshua took over. We know that. Joshua led Israel into the promised land and became their first judge as a fledgling nation as they slowly occupied Canaan. This began a season of leadership by many judges or also known as military governors. This season lasted about 350 years and included such famous judges as Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and Samuel. These leaders governed the tribes and fought off oppressive enemies. And another section of time, 100 years longer than America has existed. God's still not in any hurry. 350 years of just tribal ruling with judges that pop up for 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, 10 years. 350 years, that's 100 years longer than we have existed as a nation. God is still in no hurry and the Messiah is still nowhere on the horizon. But he's still keeping his promise to one man. 15, there are 15 judges 
uh, beginning with Joshua, ending with Eli, or excuse me, Samuel. You can see all 15 of them there and their reigns or their, their time that they judged Israel. That brings us to the time of the kings, which lasted 464 years. Big chunks of time here. Again, twice as long as America has existed. Still no Messiah on the horizon, but yet it's still Israel. Now keep in mind, we're also, we're marching towards why Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel are so critical. What's the big deal about that? Because of the carnality of the prophet Samuel's two sons, the Bible says his sons were sons of Belial. And that means you, you preachers, you gotta raise your kids up right uh, because this preacher didn't. He was a great prophet. He could rebuke Saul. He could help David, but he couldn't raise his own kids. So why be a good preacher when your kids are brats? Because of the carnality of his sons and the influence of the surrounding heathen countries, Israel desired a king. Samuel resisted, but the Lord permitted Israel to have a king, stating, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Anytime we choose the world over the way God wants things, we're saying, Lord, we don't want you reigning in our life. And Lord, I want to be more like the world. Lord, we want to do it more like the world. The church is seeing this right now. We're watching the world influence the church. And what we're saying is we don't want the lordship of Jesus Christ. We want favor with the world. Well, if you'll serve Jesus Christ, he'll give you the favor of the world. But we're really watching a lot of things back off and slough off. You can't ever court the world. It's too many Christians court the world and only flirt, Jesus, flirt with Jesus. Flirting and courtship are two totally different things. You'll court what you want to be married to. You flirt with something that you just want to play with. And we need to court and be married to Jesus Christ and not even flirt with the world. The only time we go into the world is to win somebody or go shopping. Amen. Saul became the first king, reigned for 40 years before dying in battle. David replaced him and ruled for 40 years. Solomon was king after his father David. He reigned for 40 years. So we're 120 years into the kingdom rule. 120 years into kings. Uh, that's still only half of America, so that we're not in any kind of hurry. Three kings, 120 years. That would put us back in basically 1900. Anybody remember that far back? Other than Maul Creeble? Miss Lola? <laughs> yeah. We were just inventing the car in 1900. That's, that's Saul, David, Solomon. God's in no hurry. Solomon is most known for his wisdom and for building the temple. However, his rebellion led him to love many strange women. In his old age, they turned their heart away from the Lord. He worshiped many strange gods. God judged Solomon and stripped the kingdom from him. Yet for the sake of David, the Lord left two tribes with Solomon's bloodline. This resulted in a divided kingdom. This is critical because from Solomon on, Israel's divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which has 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom, which is just Judah and Benjamin. Little, the Bible says little Benjamin. There's little Benjamin. <laughs> so he didn't even get a good tribe. He got the little Benjamin. But the kingdom was divided. Israel to the north. This is critical leading up to Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't, this is a great general survey of the Old Testament, but this is very critical to understanding because there's also things in this for our examples, for our testament, for our admonition. Israel was very, very different from Judah. From this point forward, you have Israel and Judah. And you have to be able to rightly divide that when you study the Old Testament. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. 
And when you're studying stuff, you gotta, make, you gotta kinda keep in mind, who's the prophet here? Who is he a prophet to, Israel or Judah? Isaiah, prophet to Israel or prophet to Judah? Elijah, prophet to Israel or prophet to Judah? Because it makes a difference. Elijah was a prophet to Israel. You have prophets that were prophets to Israel. You have prophets that were prophets to Judah. And then after the Babylonian and the Assyrian exile and captivity, you have prophets called prophets of restoration. And we'll, we'll head towards that here so you understand that. Now we enter into what's called the years of the divided kingdom, 344 years of division, still a total of 464. So 344 years of division. Beginning in 928 BC, Israel's divided into two kingdoms. So that's 3,000 years ago. The southern kingdom was called Judah and the northern kingdom was referred to as Israel. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was king over Judah and uh, Jeroboam was king over Israel. Israel was comprised of 10 tribes while Judah had only two, Judah and Benjamin. So Judah was much smaller. When you look on a map of Israel, when you look at the divided kingdom, the territory of Judah is very small and Israel is, is massive, okay? The relationship between the two was tumultuous and very bloody at times. They were always fighting and that, that covers a lot of your time of kings and chronicles and into some of your major prophets. After the reign of Solomon, Israel and Judah both had 20 kings apiece. Every northern king led Israel deeper into idolatry. That's bad. Beginning with Rehoboam, excuse me, Jeroboam. In fact, he set up uh, Moses' uh, the calf, the golden calf. He set up two golden calves and that was worshiped the entire time of Israel's kings, northern kings. They always had idolatry going. Only Judah had a few good kings, kings that did that which is right in the eyes of God. There's eight total, but these include famous kings like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, and Josiah. Josiah was the last good king Israel had, but he actually was killed in battle because he went out to fight Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, Josiah, don't come against me. I come in the name of your God. And Josiah wouldn't listen. He died anyway. In 722 to 718 approximately, after 200 years of idolatry, God brought upon Israel, that's the northern kingdom, severe judgment. Now this is where we want to hunker down and listen carefully. God used Assyria to enslave Israel and its 10 tribes. It is estimated that 200,000 of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, not Judah, but Israel, 200,000 of Israel's chief citizens were marched off to Assyria. That's who was left alive because Assyria came down and fought. So you killed major numbers of people and you killed the mightiest. Those are the ones that are in battle. So of the folks that are left, 200,000 of them are taken away as slaves to Assyria. That's the Northern Kingdom, Syria, marched off as slaves. While in Assyria, these Israelites, now remember they're 200 years of rebels and idols, idol worshipers. They're not serious. They intermarry. They're, they're, they're animals of opportunity like carnal Christians. With spiritual Christians, wherever you throw them, they're gonna find a church. Spiritual Christians, wherever you throw them, they're gonna find a church. They're gonna fellowship with the saints. They're gonna witness to people. They're gonna start studying the Bible. They're gonna tithe. They do what they've always done. With carnal Christians, wherever you throw them, they skip church, they rob the tithe, they fall in among heathen. Same with Israel here. These are the, these are the carnal believers, the carnal children. And you throw them off to Assyria, they shrug. Ah, oh, look, she's good looking. They go intermarry. That's exactly what the devil wanted and the Assyrians wanted. So they move up there, they start intermarrying. 
effectively dissolving their lineage and bloodline and the northern part never returned to Israel, ever, 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 never. At the same time, the Assyrians relocated foreigners into Israel to intermarry with the weakest and poorest Israelites left behind. It's a brilliant military strategy when you want to destroy a nation. The mixed offspring became known as the Samaritans. Samaria was the central capital of Israel. That's where uh, Ahab and, and uh, Jezebel, that was where they were operating out of. Jezreel was in Samaria there. That's why when you come over to the New Testament, you understand why they hated the Samaritans. They were half-breed Jews. These were the folks that were intermarried with Syrian blood. But Jesus came along and said, you got to win them to me too. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So Israel never, ever returned ever again, the northern part. They were, they were completely just absorbed into the pagan society, but that's what they wanted all along. They didn't want to be part of God's people. They wanted to be like the nations. So the Lord allowed them to be like the nations. It's, it's terrifying to think the Lord will give you what you want. And that's why you have to cling closer to him than ever before. 134 years later, Judah experienced their judgment. It took them a little bit longer to reap their judgment because they had good kings that kept trying to bring them back to Jehovah. And so uh, there's, always, uh, there's always those good leaders that will rise up and they will stay or postpone the judgment of God. But when you're a heathen and you're sinful, it'll eventually come. And you have to be careful that you're quick to repent and you don't fellowship with any of those that are sinful. Three waves of Babylonian conquest led by a young king named Nebuchadnezzar, left Judah ransacked, the city of Jerusalem destroyed, the temples in ruins, and Judah, 50,000 people less inhabited. Now that number's significantly lower because the population was smaller, the landmass is smaller, but that's 50,000 people who, who were still alive after three waves of attack. So I, we don't know how many people were killed, probably two or three times that, but of all the chief folks that were left, only 50,000 uh, 50, were taken off. Doesn't sound like a lot, but when you realize you've been attacked by Babylon three times every 10 years, it's actually almost exactly 10 years apart. Babylon would come in, attack them. They would lose the battle and 10,000 Israelites would be ta- or Jews would be taken away. And you'd think Jerusalem would repent and they wouldn't. 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar would come back, fight him again, kill a whole bunch more, take a whole bunch more prisoner. You think they'd repent, they never did. It has happened until there was no one left in Jerusalem. Three waves of Babylonian conquest. They left the city ransacked and the city, or Judah, 50,000 people less inhabited. Unlike the Assyrians, the Babylonians never bothered to recolonize Judah. And, and most believe, and obviously that's the divine sovereign hand of God. Second Chronicles 36, 21 says, they left it a desolate abode for 70 years so the land could enjoy her Sabbaths. That's what the Bible says specifically. A lot of the 70 years of captivity had to do with the fact that they never bothered to rest on the Sabbath day. So they were 70 years worth of Sabbath days owed to the land. That's a lot of Sabbath days but they had been disobeying God that long. So Babylon never inhabited Judah, left it a ghost waste town. If you know some of your major prophets, prophecies, he says, I will make you the abode of foxes and owls. It's exactly what he did. They never lived there again, not for those 70 years. It was a wasteland and nobody bothered to come in to inhabit it. There, there might've been a couple scavengers living there, but it was never a city. 
not for 70 years. Second Chronicles 36, 14 through 16, which we actually might preach next service, says this. This explains all of this that happened to Judah. Now, again, remember, Israel's gone forever. They'll never come back. You can't trace that bloodline. It's so diffused, diluted. The, the Assyrians had nothing left to send back. They just assimilated, like so many Christians do when they go to work on Monday. Like they, when they do when they go to class. They want to be cool like all the heathen in chemistry. They just assimilate, and then they come Sunday, they act like they're Christians again. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had allowed, in, oh, excuse me, hallowed, which means to make holy in Jerusalem. And Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, continuing carefully and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Notice it says that the priests were perverting the people and the people were perverted and they transgressed and acted like the people around them, the heathen, and they polluted the house of God, which God called holy. And the Lord sent messenger after messenger to warn them and straighten them out, but they wouldn't. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against them till there was no remedy. The Bible does say judgment begins in the house of God. Of course, nobody mocks the gospel like Christians who should know better. The captivity. The Jews in Babylon were treated much different than their brothers in Assyria. Jews started becoming called Jews because they're from Judah. That's where the term comes from. Israelites to the north were never called Jews. Jews were those who were in Judah. To this day, the term Jew sticks because only the Jews in Judah went to Babylon and were brought back. The lineage of Israel today are those who came back from Babylon. But those were Judans to begin with. Now it's just called Israel. So you can call them Jews. You can call them Israelites. You can call them. Nowadays, the, pot, the modern term is Israeli. Israelite kind of harkens to biblical terminology, but they're called Jews or Israelis today. But their Jews were those who were from the tribe of Judah or the, the, the kingdom of Judah. In Babylon, they were permitted to own property, hold office, and worship their God. Most did not intermarry. They clung to their nationhood. After 70 years of flourishing in Babylon, when given the chance to return home to Jerusalem, many chose to stay and enjoy the comforts of their newfound life. Isn't that always the flesh? Let me run through this really quick because I'm down to three or four minutes. J.B. Tidwell summarizes the benefits of the captivity for the Jewish people. Several points here. The Jews became a separate people while in captivity. People who did not want to become like their neighbors ever again. The Pharisees came from this era of Jewish history. This is the benefits. Of course, you know, if they'd have been separate people all along, they'd never been slaves. Of course, we're supposed to be separate people. They became pure monotheistic, giving up idolatry completely. But you know, if they had stayed monotheistic, they'd have never been slaves. Of course, we're supposed to be monotheistic. It means one God. Monotheism, mono, one, theist, thea, God. Uh, but many Christians have multiple gods, and then Jesus is the God of Sunday. Boss is the God of Monday through Friday. Food is the God of every night of the week. Entertainment's the God of Saturday, football and hockey as well. And then Sunday, that God is Jesus. Yeah. They developed theological literature and a renewed interest in the law of Moses. He points out renewed. Why did you lose interest in the law of God? If they'd have maintained it, they'd have never been slaves. They repented of their sins against Yahweh. Why didn't you repent every day? 
Why did you have to become a slave? Why did you have to get judged before you did that which was right? The synagogues were established as a place of worship centered on God's word, prayer, praise, and study. Synagogues were developed in Babylon. Now, not to freak you out, but the, the church, the early church, even this church is modeled after synagogue worship, which was developed in Babylon. It's the model. The early church model looked just like the synagogues. In fact, the book of James, when it says, when you come together in your assembly, it's the Greek word synagogue. Even James recognized the early church was modeling its existence and its pattern after the synagogue worship. No big deal. We're still worshiping the same God. We just have more revelation now. Why would we change up the way we meet, the way we preach, the way we sit? This was developed in Babylon. This is how they had worship. When they couldn't have a temple, they developed synagogues. We don't worship in a temple. Now we are the temple and we get to have, in a sense, synagogues on every corner the church, the church building. And we know church is not a building. We are the church, but the formality is still very much synagogue in its influence. Not to freak you out, but just to give you church history. Uh, Judaism became personal rather than a formal ritualism. Gosh, I learned that as a Baptist. It's all about a relationship. It's not religion. Judaism. They became a missionary people to all the nations. (laughs) Weren't they supposed to be all along? Isn't the church? All these things I see in the church going down these paths. And if we'd maintain all these same things, we won't see the judgment of the slavery that's gonna come upon many Christians. As as I read this, as I was reading the studying this, I thought, this is New Testament. Separate people, monotheistic, interest in the law of God, repent, having a house of worship, personal relationship, missionaries. That sounds like church. During this time, God placed a longing for the coming of the Messiah in their hearts. The Pharisees were especially instrumental in keeping the messianic hope before the eyes of the people. Aren't we supposed to have a longing for the coming of our Savior? This is exactly what the church is wrapping up as. I just pray we don't go into modern Babylonian captivity, though some churches already are, to have to find this again. We ought to be maintaining every one of these. In 539 BC, Babylon fell to Persia. So Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and and, uh, the folks after him, they fell to Persia. It was prophesied Babylon would fall and the Medo-Persian empire would rise. So Babylon fell to Persia. That ended the 70 years of captivity. The Persian King Cyrus decreed the Jews were free to return to their home, Jerusalem. Just as the Jews were carried away from Judah in three waves, they also returned in three waves. 535, Zerubbabel returned with exiles to rebuild the temple. And 458, 80 years later, Ezra returned with exiles to start revival and jumpstart the priesthood and worship. And in 444 BC, Nehemiah returned with exiles to rebuild the wall and protect the city. Notice that every group that comes back has to work. Nobody comes back to loaf. Those that loafed stayed in Persia. And in this last revival of God, nobody gets to loaf. God's gonna deliver us to work for him, with him, not just to sit. We've sat long enough. Three waves of deliverance to work, three waves of slavery because they refuse to repent. It's a beautiful allegory. I wish we had more time to teach it. Thus, we conclude a brief survey of Israel's history. 
This all builds up to what I want to teach on for the next few weeks about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, what it takes once God does deliver you. Hopefully you have learned something out of this survey of Old Testament history. Father, bless our time. I thank you for this church and the things you have delivered us from, the things you have delivered us for. Father, I thank you for the work you've called and set set before us. Lord, we love you. Help us to serve you. Help us to not be lazy or grow weary in well-doing. And Father, we thank you that we can see the Lord Jesus come in the clouds and we'll be ready for his return. Lord, bless these folks in Jesus' name. Amen.